cut our federal development budget by two-thirds as a proportion of the economy. We spent vast amounts of money buying the same weapon systems year in and year out. Buy lots of F-35s and lots of aircraft carriers and so forth, but we have not developed the kind of technologies which the Chinese and the Russians have. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Nate and Johnny. Marlowe is traveling for an ISI event taking place this week, and we are joined today by the economist and author David Goldman, who most recently published the book, You Will Be Assimilated, China's Plan to Sinoform the World. Thanks for joining us, David. It's an honor and privilege, Johnny. Thank you. Before we get started with the interview, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. David, many of our students and alums are likely familiar with your work, uh, but might not know much about your background and career experiences that have shaped your views. Could you share a little bit about your own education and professional trajectory and how that plays a role in your writing today? Well, I've, I've kind of had a Forrest Gump career. Uh, I had the good luck to turn up at a number of key places uh, where I learned a great deal and had the chance to sit at the feet of great men who taught me a great deal. Um, in the, uh, I started out as a student radical back in the 1970s when many of us were student radicals in the Vietnam War period, and I was persuaded by first Watergate and then the Ronald Reagan campaign that uh, what I'd been taught by the left was uh, hideously misguided and would lead us to dreadful results, and I kind of became a Reaganite. Uh, I ran into one of Reagan's uh, uh, group of uh, fanatics. Remember, when Reagan came in, the whole of the establishment thought that he was completely crazy, so the people he brought in were Californians and oddballs and the sort of people who never would have gotten a job in a proper administration. There was a gentleman named Dr. Norman A. Bailey, who was special assistant to the president for international economics. I was introduced to him by Jude Wineski, the original supply sider, and I went to see him in Washington. I've been doing some disreputable journalism and consulting and so forth. And Dr. Bailey told me in 1981, we're going to destroy communism by 1987. And we're going to do that by having a massive economic boom and a massive defense buildup. Russia won't be able to keep up with us, and the evil empire will collapse. Now, I immediately realized I was in the presence, I was in the presence of a dangerous lunatic, so of course I signed up. Uh, and my one uh, claim to a footnote is that I wrote a little paper in 1983 when President Reagan proposed the Strategic Defense Initiative, the plan to defend the United States against um, enemy nuclear missiles, uh, my paper argued that the new technologies involved in this would pay for themselves through civilian spin-offs, the way NASA had, in fact, more than paid for itself. Uh, and that got one line in a Reagan speech. So then after... Uh, uh, the Iran-Contra scandal, uh, uh, 
Jim Baker came in and cleaned out the Reaganites. The second Reagan administration was something of a, uh, uh, no, stasis, but we'd already won in those four years. It was a real revolution. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I, I wish young people today could see what it was like to be in the midst of that kind of tumult and upheaval and transformation because it was a great time to be alive. So uh, I joined Jude Wineski's consulting firm. Jude Wineski was one of the original supply siders. Supply side economics or Reagan, Reaganomics was one of the great ideas of the late 1970s and early 80s that helped fuel the economic boom. That was the Kemp Roth tax cuts. And in my capacity as an economist for this firm, I was one of the first wave of Americans that went to Russia in the early 90s after the fall of communism to advise the Russians about democracy and free markets. Back then, we all believed that the American formula of democracy and free markets was a universal elixir that, once taken by the nations of the world, would give us the end of history, the triumph of liberal democracy everywhere. Uh, we were so taken up with the success in the United States, we all believed that. In other words, we were all neoconservatives, so to speak. Um, back then, we called Irving Kristol godfather. I mean, I'm not making that up. He, he you know, held all the funding. Well, after several trips to Moscow, I realized that uh, what we were doing was not going to work, that there were cultures which were deeply ingrained in a different way, and that cured me of being uh, a neoconservative. Um, I went to Wall Street, worked for Bear Stearns. Larry Kudlow actually is the person who got me the job. Larry and I used to do a weekly conference call. Uh, and then after you know, some years of study and reflection, I became, I think, more of a theocon, a religious conservative. And I began writing a column at an obscure site called Asia Times under the name Spengler. And I kept that quite secret for you know, about 10 years because I was working on Wall Street in various capacities. I ended up uh, running debt research at uh, Bank of America for several years. Uh, I left before the 2008 crash because many of the things I saw happening on Wall Street reminded me of you know, serious felonies, uh, and I, I really didn't want to be part of it. Um, I, I uh, revealed my identity in 2009. I joined the masthead of First Things, the conservative religious publication. I stayed there for a couple of years. Uh, 2011, I wrote a book. Uh, entitled Grandly How Civilizations Die. Uh, and the argument is that uh, our demographic winter, our reluctance to bring a new generation into the world, was a result of moral and religious decline. Now, far, the Forrest Gump side of my career continued. Uh, some people who used to work for me set up a boutique investment bank in Hong Kong. And in 2013, I became a partner of that. I spent most of the next five years in Hong Kong and China. And I got an inside look from the belly of the beast at what China was doing. And I became, I would say, radically alarmed at the prospect of a China 
that might become a larger and more powerful country than the United States. Indeed, it might become the dominant country in the world. Uh, I wrote a great deal about the dangers of a rising China and how to deal with it. And as you mentioned, I wrote and published in 2020 a book entitled uh, You Will Be Assimilated, uh, China's Plan to Sonoform the World. China is so different from us that I find science fiction analogies are easier to get than political science descriptions. And in this case, I was, of course, comparing China to the Borg. Uh, I think that's the biggest question of our time. Um, I would describe myself as a hawk, but a cautious hawk. Uh, I strongly believe in the old dictum, if you want peace, prepare for war. On the other hand, if you want war, be weak and provocative. And that's the great risk, that we get ourselves into a war by being weak and provocative and not by being strong. And my main concern today is rebuilding America's industrial and technological strength. So that, in a nutshell, is uh, my career. I should say that over the years, I've become uh, more religious. I started out as a uh, serious but not particularly observant Jew, and I've become more observant uh, uh, over the years. And that will help answer the, your last question about how I see conservatives. Um, David, I'm really interested, uh, based on your personal experience, sort of moving from Reagan era neoconservatism to, I think you used the term theocon, you're at first thing. So it's so, sort of a, a more traditional social conservatism. Because neoconservatism today, I don't really know what it means. I mean, is, is neoconservatism today Bill Crystal? Is it sort of a traditional hawkishness? It's not totally clear. But I I read the early neoconservatives, the first wave neocons like Irving Crystal, and I'm struck at how socially conservative they are first. I mean, Crystal explicitly rejected the possibility of a secular American conservatism um, and also wrote famously the case for censorship for banning pornography. Um, and also sort of uh, as, a, as a sort of extension of that, how much they were they viewed sort of economics, right? The whole two tiers for capitalism thing as uh, subordinate to socially conservative aims. I mean, in general, a lot of what Irving Crystal was writing about is very reminiscent of a lot of the most fierce critics of neoconservatism today. So, I mean, it's just, I'm just sort of interested how your character uh, well, arc... I have the yeah. privilege to know Irving Crystal. I had a very high opinion of him. He was a brilliant man. He loved an argument, he loved give and take, uh, and he had many terrific insights. But neoconservatism was, it's a period piece. Remember, uh, Irving and most of his colleagues came out of the left. They were mainly Trotskyists who opposed Stalinist Russia, but considered themselves and their youth to be communists. And as they saw the evolution of communism, they moved more and more to the right, but what they could not give up was uh, a belief that religion was a useful delusion, as opposed to uh, as opposed to something true. Leo Strauss, who was certainly the most influential uh, intellectual figure of that movement, and without doubt a great scholar, uh, although he had a certain affection for the Judaism in which he was brought up. Uh, 
was finally uh, an atheist. So living with that balance was difficult. That's something that was easier to do in the 1970s than afterwards. Um, what Irving would have thought today, uh, I can't tell because sadly he's not there to ask him. Uh, but the neoconservatives since then, uh, I think, have gotten into very rote formula and become sort of a drag on the conservative movement. I think the next generation is uh, has not made a great contribution. Uh, and the uh, I think the mechanical application of uh, these political ideas led to what Donald Trump called forever wars, to the illusion that we could go into societies which had such fundamentally different belief structures and sociology, and simply through the imposition of democratic forms, change the way people think. Uh, that was a catastrophe for the world and for America's influence in the world. And one of the things I did starting with my Spengler columns in the early 2000s, was to attack the, the forever war idea, the idea that we could export democracy. So I was a premature Trumper, I guess. David, uh, before we get to the current kind of geopolitical situation with Russia and China, you had given a speech this past weekend at an ISI student conference in Dallas on liberty technology in the next American century. And you discussed how the federal government's innovation policy pursued during the Cold War ushered in the digital revolution and internet age through the creation of these new breakthrough technologies. I was wondering if you could expound on that thesis by talking a little bit how these you know, programs were structured, what was the aim and ambition of them, and also why you think such an approach is necessary for today. Well, you know, back in the early 80s, uh, I was the guy who got the coffee for the guy who got the coffee. I was very young and extremely junior, you know, doing little research papers, so I had no real influence in policy. But I did have the privilege of knowing people like Dr. Bailey, who were deeply involved in policy. It is a, I think, a a manifestation of the fallen, tragic human condition that we don't get our act together to make important changes until we've got a gun to our head. So military necessity, national security have been the most important driver of innovation and scientific discovery, new technologies in, um, uh, in our history. Maybe it shouldn't be that way, but uh, that's how it's been, and I think it's you know the result of our own uh, you know, sloth and ten tendency towards complacency. In the 1970s, everybody who was smart and had a big university job thought that Russia was going to win the Cold War. Europe's leaders all thought Russia was going to win the Cold War. I spent time in Europe. I talked to any number of European elite types. Henry Kissinger believed it. And that was because Russia had a massive military advantage in the Central Front. Russia was neck and neck with the United States in the space race. And as they showed during the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, Russia had the best air defense systems in the world. They shot down uh, nearly 100 airframes flown by Israeli pilots in 1973. 
So it looked like Russia had a technological advantage, more determination, massive commitments to armaments, and that we were destined for the dustbin of history. What the United States accomplished in the 10 years between 1973 and 1983 is one of the great miracles of the human spirit, because in a very short period of time, we perfected inventions which had been around or made new inventions, which established American military superiority and as a spinoff created the digital age. It's a fact that there are two, two astonishing facts. I don't know which, more, which one is more astonishing to me in retrospect. One is every single invention of the digital age started with a funding project from the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency or NASA. And that includes uh, uh, semiconductor lasers and optical networks, which make the internet possible, the internet itself, plasma displays, LED displays, fast, light, and easy to produce computer chips. Um, can't think of an exception. The even more astonishing thing is that every one of these inventions, which started with a DARPA funding project, did something different than the original funders had expected because American maverick, eccentric, uh, creative engineers and scientists took a direction and found things that no one had expected they would find. So, for example, uh, optical networks, which are the foundation of the digital economy, that's what transmits all of our information, required a, a, a laser that emits uh, bursts of light that can be that can code information. That's the semiconductor laser. The uh, Defense Department wanted to illuminate battlefields at night, and they gave a contract to RCA Labs. Back then, we had big corporate labs which worked with the Defense Department and R and D. Uh, but instead of finding a way to illuminate battlefields at night, RCA figured out a way to transmit orders of magnitude more information than anyone had thought possible. That made the optical network possible. Uh, same thing happened with uh, uh, what's called CMOS chip manufacturing. That's the standard manufacturing technique, which vastly cheapened the cost of producing light and powerful energy efficient chips. Started with someone at the Pentagon wanting to give fighter pilots the capacity to do weather forecasting inside the cockpit. So you need computational capacity for weather forecasting. Uh, that, again, was an RCA Labs project based on work out of Fairchild and Intel and elsewhere. Uh, the project came in in 1975, I think. They, they figured out the manufacturing process in 1976, but by 1978, we had look-down radar in F-15s. Look-down radar is very different from forward-looking radar because you have to separate the image of your target from the background below it. So it requires computational imaging. That created a revolution in avionics. That made, that made the Russian air fleet obsolete in one blow. And the list goes on. So... American ingenuity and creativity combined with the right kind of business government partnership 
produced one of the great technological miracles in all of human history. I can't think of anything like it. Uh, and that, of course, was brought to fruition by the Reagan administration. But I have to say that uh, Harold Brown, who was Jimmy Carter's defense secretary, really got a lot of that started. So it wasn't only a Republican thing. It was a bipartisan thing. Democrats and Republicans both saw the thing the same way. There was a national consensus, and we rose to the occasion. And that's uh, a large part of how we won the Cold War and proved Henry Kissinger wrong. David, I'm struck listening to uh, how you talk about the Reagan administration. It's funny that you uh, describe yourself as an early Trumper because I think it, it sounds like the Reagan administration to your generation of conservatives, of young conservatives, has a lot of parallels with what the Trump administration was to my generation of young conservatives. Now, obviously, Trump is a much more and has always been a much more controversial figure in the conservative movement, but it's undeniable that both the Reagan and the Trump administration were paradigm-shifting administrations in Republican politics. Yeah, and, you're right. Sure. Absolutely. Right. Uh, back in 1978-79, the Republican establishment thought that Ronald Reagan was this crazy nutball from the wilds of Central California who couldn't be right. trusted yeah. with a fire department, let alone the presidency. <laughs> George uh, George H.W. Bush denounced supply-side economics as voodoo economics. And the people who Reagan brought in were not top university professors and come from Harvard. They came from all kinds of strange places because the Harvard types wouldn't go near him. So yes, this sense of a revolution from the outside, a surge in the Republican base, uh, was very similar. Uh, during the Republican primaries in 1979, not one Fortune 500 CEO endorsed Ronald Reagan. Zero. When this was pointed out to him, he said, I don't care. I'll be the candidate of the small businessman, the entrepreneur, the farmer. I'll be the people's candidate. So there, there was a, a great parallel. Uh, I do think that Reagan, though, had personal qualities, which uh, were really extraordinary. Um, uh, I don't think he'd be quite compared to Trump in that respect. Um, Reagan, for example, as we know from some of his biographers now, for years did a weekly foreign policy radio broadcast sponsored by General Electric. He did his own research. He was extremely sophisticated, extremely worldly, uh, extremely bright. And the people he brought in around him, if you look at you know the Casper Weinberger, George Schultz, uh, Donald Reagan team, it was a great team, uh, and he did incredible things. That being said, I think Donald Trump did a great job on foreign policy, and I strongly believe that if Donald Trump were in office, just as Trump said, we would not have this disaster that we presently have in Ukraine. Building, uh, building off of that, uh, I'd be curious to you know to hear your thoughts. I know you've written a lot about uh, the rise of China and what we need to do to counter China. I'm curious, you know, I in my mind, I had I had expected that the first, maybe not the first, but the most immediate kind of threat of a, some some sort of military conflict would actually come in Asia. I wasn't expecting that to come in in Europe, and so I'm wondering if you could help us make sense of what is going on right now in Ukraine and what you think the American response should be. Well, I think Ukraine is a tragic situation. I think it's reminiscent of 
the way World War I broke out, where everyone has a good reason for what they're doing, but it creates a situation in which there's no good outcome, uh, a tragic situation. Um, the United States, since the fall of communism, has been expanding NATO to the east. I strongly question the wisdom of that. Uh, uh, Walter McDougall, as a professor of history at University of Pennsylvania, uh, wrote a terrific essay for Law and Liberty a couple of years ago on the tragedy of NATO expansion. I contributed uh, to the, uh, the comments around that. From Russia's standpoint, as a point that's been made by any number of top officials from the present CIA director, William Burns, on down, from Russia's standpoint, incorporating Ukraine into NATO and putting American missiles there would be comparable to what Russia did in 1961 when it put missiles in Cuba and we nearly went to war with Russia over that. Uh, the, uh, the Biden State Department, people like Tony Blinken and Victoria Nuland, the undersecretary, are fanatics about this. They have a global liberal utopian vision of the triumph of democracy everywhere. It's kind of similar to the uh, Iraq-Afghanistan democracy approach, but applied to um, Western Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, rather, and Russia. So I believe the crisis in Ukraine arose from the insistence of the United States uh, on expanding NATO to Russia's borders, uh, Putin, that doesn't excuse Putin's response, which is illegal and brutal and reprehensible. But if, you, if you're in a bar and you're crowding somebody and pushing them, and they turn around and you know punch you in the throat, uh, that's still, to some extent, your fault for having provoked it. So the Ukrainian situation, I think, is a disaster that need never have happened. Uh, there was a formula under the so-called Minsk II agreements where uh, Ukraine would stay out of NATO. Uh, the Russian-speaking minority in its eastern provinces would get a certain degree of autonomy, but everybody would stay in a sovereign Ukraine that the Russians had signed on to, indeed proposed at the beginning. Uh, and the fact that we pushed this too far uh, and also put a lot of sophisticated arms into Ukraine, elicited uh, Putin's uh, brutal and reprehensible response. So a tragic situation. Taiwan certainly is related. Uh, if you read the Chinese media uh, websites close to the state council, there's almost nothing but discussion of the parallelism between Ukraine and Taiwan. Uh, both of these are existential interests for authoritarian powers whom we don't like and whose interests we may not respect, but nonetheless they are interests. From the standpoint of Russia, having uh, a buffer between itself and NATO, not having missiles on its border, uh, that, could be, that could hit Moscow in a matter of a few minutes, is an existential security interest. From China's standpoint, Taiwan is an existential interest, but for different reasons. As I try to explain in my book, you will be assimilated. China is not a nation state. It is, it is a multi-ethnic polyglot empire. It has 300 dialects. 
If you imagine what Europe would look like if the Holy Roman Empire had become an authoritarian government and ruled over hundreds of different languages and dialects and peoples, that's how China evolved. China is always at risk of disintegration. The last time it disintegrated was in the 1930s and 1940s, and that's usually happened through foreign intervention. So the uh, nightmare of a disintegration of the Chinese state with catastrophic loss of light is still vivid in the Chinese mind. And from the Chinese standpoint, any rebel province, which is how they view Taiwan, is a threat to the integrity of the state. Of course, there's some people in the United States who think it would be great to break up China. What better way to deal with the Chinese threat? However, given that the Chinese have hundreds of nuclear weapons and they tend to be large ones, I'm not sure that this is the wisest approach. So we've had an uneasy peace over Taiwan where we all sign on to the one China policy that Taiwan's part of China. Taiwan, of course, was the refuge of the nationalist forces under Chiang Kai-shek in 1947. And it was Shang's uh, position and his successors that they were the true government of China, that Taiwan was part of China, and ultimately they would overthrow the communist rule of China and the Beijing government, of course, the communist said, of course, Taiwan's part of China. We're eventually going to reassimilate it. That one China status quo, which Richard Nixon signed on to in 1972, has kept the peace for three generations. Uh, I don't think that we can get a better result than that uneasy and uncomfortable uh, status quo that we have now. Uh, my old friend Elbridge Colby has written a popular book called Strategy of Denial. I've known Bridge since he was a graduate student at Yale 20, 20 years ago, uh, in which he argues that we should mine this Taiwan Strait, build up sophisticated weaponry in Taiwan, make it impossible for China to seize Taiwan. If we do that, we run a substantial risk that China will say, we've got the option to take Taiwan, if we're going to lose that option, then we should exercise it before we lose it. In other words, the attempt to reinforce Taiwan and make it impregnable, deny China access, uh, would be a provocation that would lead to Chinese action. Uh, that's, again, the World War I scenario. One side mobilizes, the other has to mobilize, and you set a set of events in motion which nobody wants. Now. For the last 20 years, 25 years, China has been building up armaments on its coast precisely in order to prevent us from doing that. Remember, in 1996, there was a Taiwan crisis, China threatened Taiwan, and uh, Bill Clinton sent an aircraft carrier into the Taiwan Strait. That was it. An American aircraft carrier was the most powerful weapon system of the world. The Chinese couldn't do anything about it. Now China has uh, about 1,300 intermediate-range missiles, uh, surface-to-ship missiles, which are designed to target American um, shipping. It has about 1,000 air superiority fighters, some of which are supposed to be reasonably good. It's got 60 diesel-electric submarines. There's a lot of anti-submarine warfare capability, electronic war capability, cyber war possibilities. 
Uh, we don't know quite what it has, but China's armamentarium is impressive. Now, I don't know whether China's uh, DF-21 missiles can track and destroy an American carrier sailing at full steam. But this is also a country which did manage recently to put a spacecraft on the dark side of the moon. So they're not completely incompetent. Ten years ago, they had no space program. Their progress has been scary and impressive. There's a terrific book, scary book, by Admiral Stavridis, the former commander of the Pacific Fleet, called 2034, in which he describes a scenario in which we get into a scrap with China. China does succeed in sinking an American aircraft carrier, and from there we go to a nuclear exchange. That's a convincing scenario from one of our best military minds. I, I do not think that we should risk a war on China's coast. I think we can maintain the status quo with Taiwan. Obviously, we have an interest in maintaining a democratic Taiwan. But I'm not at all convinced that we have the means to defend it and that the attempt to uh, force the issue might get us into a war with unspeakable consequences. So my proposal would be, it, let us figure out what we need to do to shoot down uh, China's intermediate range missiles. Let's see what we can do to defend ourselves against hypervelocity glide vehicles. It's a new form of cruise missile that goes at the speed of an intercontinental ballistic missile, but very close to the surface, very hard to defend against. Let's see what we can do to neutralize submarines. Uh, uh, what kind of new technologies in fighter aircraft are available? For example, drone swarms. All of these are non-trivial problems. My issue with the way we've handled this is that over the last 30 years, since I was you know, a kid at the periphery of the Reagan administration, We've cut our federal development budget by two-thirds as a proportion of the economy. We've spent vast amounts of money buying the same weapon systems year in and year out, by lots of F-35s and lots of aircraft carriers and so forth, but we have not developed the kind of technologies which the Chinese and the Russians have. We don't have a functioning hypervelocity glide vehicle that's been widely discussed in the press. But the Chinese and Russians have them. The Russians can launch them off submarines. They can park a submarine 100 miles from Washington, D.C. in international waters and deliver a nuclear weapon in about a couple of minutes that we have absolutely no defense against. That, in my view, is scandalous. And I would like to go back to the digital age moment of birth of 1973-1983 when American technology transformed weaponry, but also transformed civilian life. Uh, I think we've wasted a lot of resources. We've spent, what, $7 trillion on the forever wars. I don't know what the right number is, but it's a gigantic number. A tenth that amount applied to federal R&D would have changed the strategic balance. So it's late, but better late than never. I think that's what we need to get back to. David, um, in terms of the ideologies driving Russia and China today, you've written about the influence of uh, Alexander Dugin and 
Putin's Russia, and you make a compelling case for Chinese ambitions in your recent book. But can you speak in greater detail about the worldview motivating these two regimes and what it pretends for classical liberalism and the sort of modern American understanding of itself? Well, there's a, there's a new book out. It will be translated into English shortly uh, called The Logic of Civilization by a professor at Fudan University in Shanghai. His name is Wen Yang. He's kind of a frenemy of mine. We've been attacking each other in print for years, and he asked me to write the English language introduction to his book, which I did recently. A shortened version appeared in China Daily. The Chinese think they've got a superior civilization. Their view is we've been settled for 5,000 years. That's given us the ability to develop a better writing system and a deep culture and a deep sense of social cohesion, whereas the West are a bunch of barbarians who were nomads until about a thousand years ago and still have the habits of people who just walked out of the jungle. Look at the Russians and the Ukrainians and say, in their own media, these are just barbarians killing each other. What stake do we have in that? If you push the Chinese about their system, they'll say, you Americans allow people to elect stupid people to political office. How can you do that? In China, first we've got the Gaoco exam, 10 million kids take the exam. The top 1% go to the elite universities. And out of that top 1%, we screen them and we get the top 10th of a percent and we train them as political cadre. So when you speak to Chinese officials, uh, they can't understand what stupid people are like because they haven't known any since they were tracked into the uh, advanced placement classes in, in four, at age 14 or something. Uh, they very much believe in a meritocratic elite which makes decisions on a piratable basis. So the Chinese Communist Party, with its 93 million members, remember that's more the, than the adult population of Germany and France combined, has a group of people at the top who are the ultra-elite, and they are smart people. Not like the drunken Russian bureaucrats of the past. They're very sharp guys and girls. Um, and they have people around them who radiate out the policy that they dictate. Uh, now, that system, of course, is not particularly good at incorporating the eccentrics and mavericks and oddballs who do the really interesting creative work. America's genius is finding a way to give these... Uh, give that kind of independent mind a shot at raising capital and transforming the world, which is why I think we we ultimately have a better system. But there are times when the Chinese top-down system works better. The Chinese do not intend to send the People's Liberation Army to occupy San Francisco. Uh, they think that's a waste of time. They want to control the commanding technologies and control trade and control investment and make everybody pay tribute to them and be subordinate to them. They want to have the most powerful weapon systems, uh, be the nexus of the world and the dominant civilization. Uh, it's not quite the same as Messianic Russian communism of my youth, which actually did want to occupy the world. The Chinese fund Confucius Institutes at universities, which do a very unconvincing job of convincing people that China's a nice place, which no one really believes. It's not quite the same thing as 
massive Russian funding for communist parties uh, with underground movements designed to overthrow and subvert democracy. So the Chinese threat is different than the Russian threat. It's on the surface, it's less threatening because you don't have the, that kind of military subversion component, but because the Chinese are much smarter and tougher than the Russians, and there are many, many more of them, it's much more dangerous to us. So what we have against China's numbers is creativity, the ability to uh, find the, you know, the oddballs who say, well, why don't we try something totally different? That's, the Chinese are good at executing a particular project. If the Chinese want to do one thing, put a rocket on the, uh, uh, land on the dark side of the moon, for example. They'll put a thousand engineers on it. If that's not enough, they'll put 10,000 engineers on it. They'll do whatever they have to get the thing done. They're not that good at the unknown unknowns. At the really creative and transformative things that the planners haven't thought of. So I still think we have an edge against them, however formidable the Chinese can be. And I've argued, I argued, I argued in a piece in the American Mind, the uh, Claremont website, that China is really not a very big place. The number of really elite, top scientific and engineering minds, it's a relatively small pool. We should try to recruit them and pick them off, create a brain drain. One thing, you know, we're, we're, as Ronald Reagan said this, we're pretty good at making Chinese into Americans, but, you know, Americans can't become Chinese. That's a one-way flow that's in our advantage. David, one, one last question we want to ask you before wrapping up our interview is something that we ask all of our guests. What is conservatism and what does that mean to you? Well, America, human creativity is both the most glorious and the most dangerous thing there is. You know, we, the 20th century gave us penicillin, nuclear power, space travel, and all kinds of wonderful things. It also gave us Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, and human catastrophes on an unimaginable scale, which arise from the arrogance of uh, people who think they have a canned solution to the world's problems and have the right to impose it on everybody else, regardless of the cost. So I think a sense of the importance of tradition and the wisdom of the ages and the vote of past generations is essential to counterbalance our tendency to let our creativity run wild and get out of hand and turn into something ugly and destructive. So realizing that the human condition has not changed that much over all these thousands of years of recorded history, and that the problems we confront today are not fundamentally different from those our ancestors confronted, and that the wisdom gained by religion and philosophy and politics over all these years is a treasure to be guarded against the... Um, against their own arrogance. Uh, that's conservatism to me. Because the human, human beings are very dangerous animals. 
because we can invent new stuff. Sometimes that new stuff has catastrophic consequences. So for us to restrict ourselves, to limit our own capacity and look at tradition as something to which we have a responsibility is the only thing that prevents us from destroying ourselves. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, David. Um, if people are interested in seeing more of your work or following you, where can they find you? Uh, Asia Times, asiatimes.com. Uh, and you know, I have the privilege to write for uh, Claremont Review of Books, Law and Liberty, and a number of other sites. You can find me on Twitter at David P. Goldman. It's been a privilege. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.